This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network America relies on. When Lily Singh started her YouTube channel in 2010, she was all about the hustle. And who could blame her, right? I mean, being a full-time content creator is nothing but a hustle, especially back then when there really wasn't a clear roadmap on how to do it. But in that hustle, Lily admits her value system was all out of whack. She was so focused on metrics and awards and achievements that she never thought to tie her value to things like mental health or self-growth. But now she's turning it around and she's encouraging us all to do the same in her recent book, Be a Triangle. In our conversation, Lily explains how her YouTube career and her stint in Late Night has had a major impact on what she values and how she views content creation today. This is Creative Control. I'm your host, Casey Finey. Each week, I'll be unpacking the driving forces and people shaping the creator economy and what it all means for its future. Well, hello, Lily. How are you? I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm very excited to talk to you. Um, I want to hop right into it and ask a pretty broad question. Let's <laughs> we can do it. narrow it down from there. How are you defining yourself these days? Who is Lily Singh in 2022? Ooh, okay. Already hitting me with the hard, <laughs> hard hitting right off the bat. I like Coming it. Coming out the gate swinging. Come on now. I know you can handle it. <laughs> I like it. Yeah, no, I can handle it. How am I defining myself in 2022? I love that you asked this question because a lot of my spiritual work recently has been answering this exact question. And my answer is I've been defining myself as a absolutely complete human being. And the reason for that is I've done a lot of work to let go of this idea that my value is tied only to the things I do and the things I have and the things I've achieved and external relationships and external validation. And so now I move forth in the world with with the understanding that I'm already a complete human being that has value and has purpose. And all these other things I do, these events and these projects and these work things, and these relationships are just bonus experiences on top of an already complete thing. Mm, that's beautiful. And so what were you missing if now you're complete? I was missing um, the value I would associate with things that were not work. Mm. I think for a long time, I subscribed to this idea of value being numbers and achievements and everything school taught me to, for it to be and everything society and my parents taught for me to be you know, a job and a relationship and a marriage and kids. And I never tied value to self-growth. I never tied value to mental health. I never tied value to working on my spirituality. But all of those things do hold value. And so now when I have like a day where I feel like I'm a little more patient or I've been a really good friend, I add value to those things. And so I think what was missing is me thinking those things were meaningful. For sure. And obviously, we can't talk about value without talking about your YouTube, because you mentioned like value being a number. And I know that YouTube obviously was, that's how we got to know you. You started your channel back in 2010, and you became such a massive success on that platform. And I can totally see how you would draw value from like, oh, I have millions of subscribers. I have all these views and whatnot. But I want you to take us back to 2010 on YouTube. What do you remember about that time? In 2010, YouTube was still pretty new. It was not a household name. No one really, not, at least in my world and living in Toronto, Ontario, 
Not everyone understood what it was, what the purpose of it was. Definitely no one thought it could be a career. That was unheard of. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a handful of creators, quite a small um, community of creators, most of which lived in the States. And so I was very far from them distance-wise. There was an even smaller handful of creators in Toronto that I became friends with. But it was kind of just like, oh, people are having fun making videos on the internet. Like, this is the phase and this is going to not be relevant in a little while. Um, It definitely wasn't considered a business. It wasn't considered something you should invest your time and energy into in that way, Um, which was, you know, a very interesting reality for when I walked into my parents' room and said, I don't want to go to grad school. I want to make YouTube videos because they were like, say what now? I'm sure they love that. (laughs) 2010 and YouTube was really, is this thing going to last? What does this thing even mean? And yeah. and what is what is this going to turn into? Whereas now I think we know social media is not going everywhere. YouTube is tried and tested. It's a major staple in our culture. It was just getting its footing in 2010. Right. And so how did you find your footing in YouTube back then? A lot of trial and error. I mean, I had a few people to look to for inspiration, but I saw no other South Asian women doing what I was doing. So right. I saw an opportunity to do something different. I, I think the reason I gained a lot of traction with my first couple of videos was because I was a brown girl talking about relationships and parents and taboo subjects. And my audience was like, what? You can do this? <laughs> what is what is this person doing? And I think that's what was attractive to a lot of people. And so it was a lot of making it up as I went along because I really had no one else to look to, not only in terms of creative stuff, but also just like the marketing aspect of it. Like, how do I get people to watch more videos? How do I even use a camera? How do I even write stuff? What, what? I had to learn all of that stuff. So it was a lot of just, yeah, like I said, trial and error. I love that you mentioned that because I was going to ask, if you do you think if you launch your YouTube channel today with the same kind of content, talking about relationships, all obviously your iconic skits, um, do you think you would have had a similar success story if you launched your channel today? Hell no. <laughs> um, Elaborate, think, please. <laughs> I'm very self-aware and honest. I know a lot of why I gained traction is because no one else was doing what I was doing. I think now there's so many people on YouTube and across different platforms making content. And I think that's a pro and a con. I think the pro is that people are no longer questioning the validity of YouTube as a platform. You know that a creator is a business owner. You know that they're doing meaningful work with brands. You know that they're securing the bag. You know that they're a force to be reckoned with. You know they're influential. There's no questions about that. Whereas some of my struggle in 2010 was getting anyone to take it seriously. Having said that, the con of that is that, yeah, it is much more saturated. I think I would find it very difficult to, not impossible, but I think I would find it difficult to really stand out and make my mark and build a community online right now. So I give mad kudos to everyone that is doing it right now because I think it would be really hard. No, for sure. And what did you want back then? Because as you mentioned, it wasn't necessarily as standard as it is now or as commonplace as it is now to have uh, this, you know, booming career based off of YouTube. It was still very kind of touch and go. And, you know, not to say that everyone who starts YouTube now is automatically going to be successful. You have to put in the work. You have to pay your dues and whatnot. But there definitely is a very clear career path right now if you want to be a content creator. But for you, what did you want back then? Like, when, when, did, when did the bigger picture start to come into focus for you? I'm going to give you my... Um, surface level answer, and then I'm going to give you my deeper answer. Okay, thank you. I was going to say, don't stop at surface level. (laughs) My surface level answer is that I wanted to be well-known. I wanted to make money. I wanted to be famous. I wanted to be a star. I wanted 
all of those things because for so long. Are you long, reciting the lyrics tough. to that Pussycat Doll song? <laughs> <As> so maybe, <laughs> I don't know, but that's genuinely what it is. I wanted to have a career in creativity because mm. that was so unheard of. You know, that was, creativity was supposed to be a phase growing up. It wasn't supposed to be a career. And I wanted to challenge that. I wanted to prove that wrong. The deeper surface level answer here, which I, I guess it's, I, I guess it's kind of, both of these answers are kind of related. Listen, growing up, I'm very honest. And I talked about this in my TED talk about the chip on my shoulder. I was born into a reality where ha- being the second daughter was not a huge thrill or joy for a lot of people um, in the culture I was born into. And I, so I think the chip on my shoulder, as much as I tried to maybe deny it before. Now I'm just so honest about it was to be in a position of influence. I was born into reality that being born a girl was a disappointment. And I always wanted to be in a position of power and influence to combat that. And from a young age, I wanted to be a movie star. I wanted to be a musician. I wanted to be anything that would put me in the spotlight to prove that I was worthy. And so YouTube was just this, this thing that connected those dots. Mm-hmm. And how are you thinking about your position of power and influence now, because to attain it is one thing you have it. And we've obviously seen you do amazing things with your platform. So, I mean, how are you thinking about that now? That's a really great question. Um, my answer to this question is always evolving depending on what is happening in my mind and what's happening in the world. Um, I think right now I have two ways I think about my influence and both are kind of on opposite ends of the spectrum, but they somehow work hand in hand. One is I do believe that to be of best service to the world, I need to live my most fulfilling life. And so how I view my influence now in relation to my own life is to create a life for myself that empowers me and fulfills me and makes me happy and is fun for me so that I'm the best version of myself to give back to the world, to create art, to be the best me. Um, So I, in some ways, use it selfishly to empower myself. Having said that, I'm very clear about my agenda, re-representation. I will die on the hill of getting more South Asians on screen and behind screen and in rooms where decisions are getting made. And I believe stories make the world go around. You know, when people ask me what it is that I do um, professionally, I always, I never know how to answer that question. I'm like, do I say author? Do I say actress? <laughs> what I actually say is storyteller. I just believe right. in the power of stories. And I think it's a really sad thing that people don't have stories that they can see themselves in. And so my influence right now behind the scenes and in every such way is to get more people who look like me into stories so that we can see ourselves. We're going to take a quick break. And when we're back, Lily explains how her historic late night show on NBC wasn't exactly what she was expecting. This episode of Creative Control is brought to you by Verizon, the network you can rely on for your phone and for your home internet. Find the plan that's right for you at verizon.com. You mentioned your TED Talk uh, a little bit early, which is fantastic. I encourage everyone to go Thank watch you it. It was, so re- much. it was really, really good. What did I want to be when I grow up? I wanted to be treated equally. And I'm not alone in this mission. In fact, us girls, what we desperately want is a seat at the table. It's what every motivational poster, Tumblr post, Instagram account you follow, business card tells us success is a seat at the table. You know, and if they want to be extra spicy, they say, if there is no seat, drag your own seat. I'm sure you've heard this. Right. And so my marching orders were clear. Get a seat at this coveted table by any means necessary. And that's been the driving force behind my entire career. 
Now, in 2010, I noticed that no one on YouTube looked like me. You know, there was no South Asian woman who's very loud and uses her hands a lot, giving her take on the world. There was no me in front of a camera. I saw a seat up for grabs, so I got to work and I started a channel under the name Superwoman. Yeah, because although I'm smart enough to do a TED talk, I'm not smart enough to understand copyright. <laughs> I taught myself how to write, shoot, and edit my own content. And I worked really hard. When I finally got the hang of it, I committed to posting two comedy videos a week, and I found success. With a backward snapback on my head, I gave my take on relationships, pop culture, taboo subjects, and most popularly, dressed up like my parents. It was so scary. So I'm glad you said that. Scary? How? You've been on you world tours before. You had to memorize that whole thing. Did you know that? That whole thing is memorized. I figured as much because there was a shot of where, you know, it was like the camera's cut a little bit behind you showing the audience. I was like, oh, there's no screen. There's no teleprompter there, is there? There's no prompter. No, it is 19. That was 19 minutes of pure memorization. You handled it like a boss, a whole boss. Thank you. And in that TED Talk, I, you were very candid about your your late night show, A Little Late with Lily Singh. And, you know, now that you have some distance from, a little bit of distance from the show, I mean, it ended last year, like, how do you think that experience shaped you? Because it was such a huge, momentous thing, and yet I d- it sounded like, as amazing as the opportunity was, it, you may not have been equipped with the resources to really execute it fully. So I, I just, I'm just curious of like how that experience has shaped you. In a bunch of ways. I think personally, the way it's shaped me the most, it has taught me the value of having fun mm. and being passionate about something. Um, for so many years, since I started in 2010 on YouTube, I have been on the hustle and grind, doing the gigs I didn't necessarily care about, doing the things I wasn't necessarily passionate about, taking the job that was low paying because it would help me earn my stripes. And I did all of that because I wanted influence power. I wanted an amazing career. And I thought one day I'm going to earn my stripes and I'm going to get to that place where I can have the life I want to have and I can do the things that excite me. But we get so caught up in that race that we a lot of us don't realize that we've earned that already. We've earned that position. And so when I got asked to do the late night show, you know, I initially said no because I never grew up with the desire to be a late night host. You know, that was not my Mm -hmm. dream. That was not my vision board. I wanted to be in entertainment. I wanted to act, but I never wanted to host. And I never grew up with late night, you know, never played in my family home growing up. So um, when it came back around, the reason I said yes, to be really honest, was a mixture of, pressure, a responsibility I felt, and a little bit of ego because I was told that it would be historic and this could be make a really big change for representation. And so, of course, I wanted to be part of that historic moment. Who doesn't be? But I also thought, oh man, if I say no to this and it goes to someone else, there's a chance this historic moment could not even happen. Mm. And that would be a great disservice. So I felt a lot of pressure to do this, to try to help pave this path. I was naive to think that that feeling would help me get through multiple seasons of this show because (laughs) that's a hard thing to hold on to when you're shooting for like 17 hours every single day and it's the most emotionally and physically and spiritually tough thing you've ever done. So, I mean, the first season was really hard. The second season, I could say, was a bit more fun. But still, I think what that show taught me was, you know what, it's actually really important for me if I'm going to work this hard for me to really care about what I'm working on. And I recognize that's a privileged thing to say. I'm not denying that, but I feel I've earned that position of privilege to be able to now, when I evaluate projects, say, hey, I'm so down to work 18 hours on set, 
But as long as I can come home and say, that was awesome. And I had mm. so much fun doing that. Um, that's important to me now. That's how I define success now. I love that. I love that. And, you know, it, as you're listing the reasons why you said yes, I was going to ask, I mean, are those reasons to say yes? Because I, I, I fully get the feeling that, you know, as you mentioned, this feeling of if I turn it down, then this opportunity could go to someone who doesn't look like me. Mm -hmm. And I feel like oftentimes when it comes to minorities in positions of influence and power, sometimes we make decisions that are bigger than us <laughs> and it yeah, can carry absolutely. so much weight. And so I love the fact that you are now in a position where you're moving with what moves you as opposed to like, I mean, you, you, you're still fighting the good fight of representation, but it seems like you freed yourself of that burden a little bit. Two things can be true yeah. at once. And I think I didn't believe this or know this before. I do know it now. Two things can be true. You can still want representation and fight for representation, and you can still take care of yourself at the same time. Mm -hmm. I don't think I believe that. I think I was so in the mindset of like, you got to do this. This is your duty. And like, you got to be part of this moment. Whereas, again, going back to your very first question, maybe the problem is that we label ourselves in all these ways anyways. I'm not just mm -hmm. a late night host. I'm not just any of these things. That is one facet of who I am. But when you make it your whole world, you start to blur those lines between yourself and what your duty is. And so now I think it's not that I don't want those moments of representation. I just know what they mean to me now. Right. They're not all I am. It's not all I am as someone who is a first late night host. And so that's not all I am. I'm already a complete human being. And all these things I can do are just bonus. Yeah. You know, obviously, aside from your stint as a late night host, you've been really diving doubling down on acting <laughs> like you have so i mean doll face you have this muppets project coming up you've done, like you just have so much going on and so i'm always curious because when i always feel like oftentimes you know people content creators they look at their platforms as like a leaping pad into something else into quote unquote more traditional entertainment or traditional hollywood and so i'd love to hear from you like what are those differences between traditional the traditional entertainment industry and kind of like the content creator entertainment industry? There's a lot of differences. I mean, when I when I decided to do the late night show, I was like, okay, I'm going to do this thing that pays me less that less people will watch than YouTube, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so the difference is control. It's, it's right. control. You know, I as a digital creator, there is no gatekeepers. It's what you want. It's on your schedule. There's pros and cons to that because there's no HR. There's no punching in and out. It's all encompassing 24-7. But you have more control. You don't have to go through layers of bureaucracy and people telling you what they think will work. And I think that's why we get the most authentic stories on social media, because there's no one trying to shape those stories. They just are what they are. Um, having said that, then the question would be asked of why the heck would I ever want to do anything traditional mm -hmm. coming from the digital space? <laughs> I have done the work to learn that there's a deeper reason. I was, I was not raised in the social media era. I was still raised idolizing movie stars and TV stars and musicians and pop stars. And so to me, that still is exciting to me to be on big screen because that's, I, I don't know how true that will be for the coming generation because I don't know if the younger generation sees a difference between Madonna and a YouTuber. I they think don't. they're just like, <laughs> they don't. But I think I'm part of the last generation that did. And so for me, it's still really exciting to get to make movies and TV shows. I think the inner child me still thinks that's really exciting. Yeah. And so do you think Hollywood understands kind of like where you like the world you came from? Do you feel like you're you you are getting that respect knowing like where you started? 
I think yes and no. I think now no one in Hollywood can deny people that have come up on social media because they have such massive followings and they obviously are natural marketers and they've gotten mm -hmm. what Hollywood wants. They've gotten eyeballs. They've gotten people invested in their in themselves and their stories. I think where the disconnect is, all of the reasons we are successful are the things Hollywood tries to change. Mm. That's where the disconnect is. It's like digital creators are successful because they are authentic, because they don't have to have perfect talking points. Their frames aren't perfect. They're a little janky. They're, it's just real. And as soon as you try to take that person and put them into a setting that has to be perfect and you have to sit behind a desk and you have to, hey, this episode has to be exactly 22 minutes and 22 seconds. Like mm -hmm. that's when you start falling into that. You're taking away all the magic of what makes this work. Right. Until those systems are broken, I don't know if that will ever translate. That's a really good point. That's a really good point. And I definitely want to talk about your new book, Be a Triangle. This is a yes. follow-up to How to Be a Boss, which was released what, in 2017. So yeah. what prompted this second book? Well, I'm going to be real with you. After I wrote my first book, How to Be a Boss, I was like, be, Don't I be am real. Be fake. Be fake with me. <laughs> You're right. I should stop saying that. But I say it because sometimes I say things and people are like, whoa, I wasn't expecting you. And I'm like, I just want to let you know who you're talking to. After I wrote that book, How to Be a Boss, I was like, I am never writing another book again. This is so hard. <laughs> Books are so hard. I will never be doing this again. Mark my words. And then much to my surprise, I released another book. And yeah. I'm saying once again, I'm never writing another, another book. <laughs> but the reason I wrote this book was, I say that How to Be a Boss was all about hustling, goal setting, how to achieve your dreams, how to make a great first impression. Be a triangle is, okay, you got all of those things. What do they mean? It is deeper. It is more spiritual. It is me assigning and unassigning value to different things in my life and really building a strong foundation mentally that will not change no matter what comes in my life. And now I'm going to explain that in more practical terms because I my biggest pet peeve is when people talk about things very fluffy, like foundation, good person. Like, what does that actually mean? So... I realized that part of the reason I was so lost during the pandemic wasn't just that everything disappeared. It was that what we were talking about earlier. I only assigned my value to work and productivity and accolades. And so when that all went away, I felt like I had no value during the pandemic. I felt like I wasn't a real human being. And that made me sad because it made me think, is that all you are? That's all you are? You're just a shell of a human being that goes to work? And I realized it's because I've never done the work as a kid or as an adult to really think about what do I want out of life? Who do I want to be? And what is important to me? Because those things were always told to me. They're always mm. told to me by parents or society or school. And I never gave it any original thought. And so I thought, I want to create a safe space in my mind that is made up of pillars that, that, that create a foundation that will not change no matter what happens in my life. Whether I really, really get super successful or whether I super, super fail, that safe place in my mind will not change. And so I built that place. And when I started Googling strong foundation, strong foundation, Google said, you mean the triangle? Because structurally <laughs> speaking, uh, a triangle is the strongest shape because that's the strongest foundation out of any shape. And so I thought that's how I want to build my life. So I came up with these pillars in the book um, that build up my strong foundation. I really love that. And so, you know, I, I feel like, what would you say is at your foundation? Like as you're building strength in your foundation, what is it comprised of? Yeah, my foundation. I Asking suggest, for a friend. <laughs> yeah, 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 I got you. I got you for your friend. Um, 
I suggest that our foundation should be made up of four things. And I do believe regardless of who you are and who's listening to this, no matter what your job is, where you live, what stage of life you're in, I believe that we can have these same four pillars. Um, They are a relationship to yourself, a relationship to the universe, understanding distraction, and implementing design. And the reason I feel that way is because none of these pillars are tied to anything external. No external relationship, no external validation, no job, no no country, nothing. Uh, I think we'll always have these four things, no matter where we are in life. And I do think that we can look at every problem or struggle or joy in life through the lens of these four pillars. Mm. And through those four pillars and just your current mindset right now, how would you describe your relationship to content creation now? I think my relationship to content creation now is one of pure, well, actually there's two parts of this answer. One is of pure expression where I want to create simply to express where I'm at in hopes other people may see themselves in that. But if they don't, that's okay. Um, I also create content now very honestly and bluntly knowing that if I post on social media, that is a tool for my job. Mm. I think part of the reason I had an unhealthy relationship with social media for so many years is that I assigned it more value than I think it should be given. It is a great tool that we should use. It should not use us. Uh, It used me for many years. I think knowing that there's a level of performativeness to it is something we can embrace. I don't think we have to have friction against it because it's performative. I think we can acknowledge that there's a little performance. It doesn't mean it's less valuable. It doesn't mean that it's not valid. But me writing a caption about my mental health and then taking a picture associated with that caption, as real and valid as those words are, is still a level of performativeness. Absolutely. Because a natural human being does not take a picture of themselves and then write them, write a cap. It's not a natural response. So I've acknowledged that while all my words are still true, it is still a tool for my job and to connect with an audience. It is not my value. It is not real life. It is not how I want to have all of my conversations with the people I love and care about. It is not where I believe meaningful conversations can solely take place. That's how I've adjusted my relationship with it. Mm. Do you think enough content creators are having those types of conversations with themselves? Because you were one of the creators who, in around like 2018, 2019, were really speaking out and saying like, hey, we're super burnt out. Hey, like, you know, we we do have this somewhat unhealthy relationship with this platform of just the way we're uploading and it's just always more and more and more. And, you know, obviously that 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 sparked a larger conversation around burnout. And I know that conversation continues to happen. But, you know, what you said just now is really important because I think most people look at these platforms as it's still this conflation of your personal life, but also if you're a content creator, you're trying to you're trying to make it. You're investing a lot of resources and time into it. And so I always wonder if people are having those types of conversations with themselves as they enter into becoming a content creator. So, I mean, do you think people are having those conversations? Like what really is sort of the future of the creator economy as it pertains to creators and their mental health? Yeah, maybe not right from the jump. I think this is something that's definitely learned. And after you're in it for a while, you start to realize like, oh, this is kind of messing with my psychology. It's kind of messing with the way I view the world. I think once you reach that point, you will start to have those conversations. I think more than anything is a lot of content creators fall in the trap of saying, I want to be authentic to my audience because we know it's what our audience wants and it feels right to us to be authentic to our audience and doesn't feel like our job is a facade. The thing about content creation is it's such a blurred line between 
authenticity and building a brand and it still being a job. And we have to understand that those things can mutually exist because the trap we fall into is trying to make our job seem like it's not a job. Like, oh, I'm posting it's because I love you guys and I love my audience and this is who I am, but also buy my merch. Like, it's okay. Those things can exist. You can be authentic and it can be a business. Mm. You can say no to things and still love your audience. Like, we have to learn that our field is so, the lines are blurred so much. And we need to do a better job to make those distinct lines and realize that it doesn't make us inauthentic. In fact, the most authentic thing you can do as a content creator is say, hey, this is my business. Social media is my tool. I'm still really honest in all the things I say and, and, and perform to you guys, but it is a job still. And we need to remember that. If we start thinking it's not a job, then that's, that's where things get messy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. To kind of bookend uh, this conversation with the question I asked at the beginning, if you have this strong foundation, if you're building this strong foundation, conceivably, that's a stronger foundation for you to kind of stand on your tippy toes and look into the future. So who do you want Lily to be in the future? I want Lily to be someone who didn't have to write another book because this one is still working. I truly do. I want this to be the blueprint for the rest of my life. And so who I really want, and this is how I know I've I've grown as a person, because if you asked me this two years ago, I would have been like, I want to be an Oscar winner. I want to be the person that won. I would define myself and describe myself simply through those ways. But the answer to my question genuinely is I want to be someone who is still a complete human being, who is still doing awesome things. Don't get me wrong. I still have a lot of things on my vision board. I have a lot of goals, but that's what they are. They're goals. They're not my definition. Mm. And so I still want to be a complete human being who's doing amazing stuff on top of being complete. Oh, Lily, that is beautiful. <laughs> I you. love that. Thank you. I did, we t- it took a while to get here, but we're here. Listen, and all that matters is that you're here now. So, <laughs> And I do want to emphasize that, though, because I think a lot of times when I talk about mindfulness or like spirituality or things like that, people are very like, oh, so she's not going to work hard. Okay, so she's not going to hustle. No, Mm-mm. I believe in the intersection between hustling and spirituality and business and spirituality. I can still accomplish all the things I want to do. It's just what those things mean to me is the thing I figured out. Right. Oh, man. This has been such a lovely conversation, Lily. Thank you so much. Oh, my goodness. The feeling is so mutual. Thank you. Just so directly to the point, just gem after gem after gem. No wonder TED Talk called you. They knew. (laughs) They knew. I appreciate you, my friend. That's going to do it for this episode of Creative Control. Make sure you subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And make sure you rate and comment as well. We would love to hear from you. Fast Company podcasts are produced by Avery Miles and Blake Odom. Editing and sound design is by Nicholas Torres. Our executive producer is Joshua Christensen. Deputy editor David Litsky provided editorial oversight for this episode, as well as senior VP of entertainment Scott Meepus. 